So if you've got a Bible with you there on the couch, I want to encourage you to open it with me to Colossians chapter 1. It's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, the words will be on your screen as we read them together as well. But in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, Brian read it for us earlier. I'll read it again. The Apostle Paul writes these words about Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You know, in 1914, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand sparked a global conflict known as World War I. And the conflict that would ensue over the course of those next four years from 1914 to 1918 would ultimately claim 20 million lives. Those of military personnel and civilians in countries that's, that, uh, across uh, Euro the European continent. And so in, in that, for that four years, there were millions of people who lost their lives. On the heels of the end of that conflict, there was a deadly flu pandemic that erupted that took 50 million lives across the globe between 1918 and 1920. In fact, it took 675,000 American lives over the course of that time. And then not long after that flu pandemic subsided, uh, stock prices in 1929 began to decline in September and early October. And on October 18th, they began to fall sharply. As a result, panic set in. And on October 24th, Black Thursday, a record 12 mil almost 13 million shares were traded. As a result, investment companies and leading bankers attempted to stabilize the market by buying up large blocks and quantities of stock, producing a moderate rally on Friday. But by the time the markets reopened on Monday, the storm broke anew and the market went into a free fall. Black Monday led to Black Tuesday, in which 16 million shares were traded on the New York Stock Exchange in a single day. As a result, billions of dollars were lost, wiping out thousands of investors in fact, the stock tickers couldn't keep up uh, the, with, with the volume of trading that was taking place on the market floor that day. And so in the midst of this historical moment, I want you to consider with me, you had war, World War I for four years that erupted across Europe and most other parts of the globe as well, from 1914 to 1918. That ends, and then you have a flu pandemic which ravaged the population of the world at that time. That time there was a, just shy of 2 million billion people on the earth, and 50 million of them were taken by this flu virus. Not long after that, you would have the stock market collapse and crash and hundreds of thousands of people losing jobs and losing their investments, billions lost across our nation. And in the midst of that historical moment with war and disease in the background and an unanticipated financial collapse several years into the future, there came a song. You see, in, in 1922, the daughter of a Methodist minister who had immigrated from the U.S. to England, her name was Helen Limmel. 
She penned these words that have been published in 61 hymnals and sung in churches across the globe. The first verse of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus says this, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Now listen, we are living in a dark moment in human history today. And I know there are many of you perhaps on your couches or in your living rooms or around your kitchen tables right now whose souls are weary and troubled and you're having a difficulty seeing light in the midst of all the darkness that seems to be piped into your homes on a daily basis on network news channels. And so I don't know about you, but I know for me this morning, I need some of that strange dimness that strange dimness that she speaks of in the chorus of this song that we've just sung together. I need some of that strange dimness to fall upon the things of this earth. And I need to behold the fullness of Jesus' glory and His grace, particularly on this Sunday, this Palm Sunday, in which the church has historically celebrated the triumphal entry of Jesus, the bigness of Jesus, the godness of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus. I need to behold the light of His glory and the light of His grace so that the things that are going on around us would become somewhat strangely dim. Not that, not that we would turn our blind eye to what's going on around us, but there would be a dimness as those things recede into the background of our lives and Jesus ascends into the foreground of our lives this Palm Sunday. And so I want to do that by looking at this text in the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, because there's nothing that our souls need more every day, but particularly this Sunday, than to behold His glory and to behold His grace. So that's what I want us to see this morning as we look at it. So first of all, let's behold His glory in Colossians chapter 1. Now, to behold something, let me, let me just break it down for us. To behold something is different than just a passing glance, okay? There are many things that fall before our eyes on a day-to-day basis, but most of them come just by a passing glance, right? We see it in one moment and it's gone in the next. But when we behold something, we cannot take our eyes off of the person or the object at which we are, upon which we are looking, Listen, if you think about it this way, I've done a number of weddings in my days as a pastor, and every time those doors open to the back of the church and the bride begins to make her way down the aisle and the groom is standing next to me to my left, his eyes are locked with hers and he's beholding her because he can't take his eyes off of her. In her radiance, in her beauty, in all the splendor of that moment, he's beholding his bride. Or perhaps whenever you, as, as, as a young uh, couple, or find yourself in a delivery room expecting your first child, and that child is born, and they take them from their mother's womb, and they do all the things they need to do to the child to make sure that he or she is okay, and they place them back in the mother's arms. And the mother is, no matter what's going on around her, she's looking down into the face of that infant, 
beholding him or her. She can't take her eyes off of him or her because up until then, all she's seen is a dim reflection through a sonogram and now she's beholding that child face to face. That's what it is to behold something. Not a passing glance, but our eyes locking on it and not being able to move from it. So we need to behold His glory this morning. Now listen, the word glory in the New Testament literally means to have a high opinion of someone. That they are to be honored, they're to be exalted, they're to be celebrated. Okay, that's what it means to have a high opinion, a high estimation of an individual. And listen, although Paul does not use the word glory here in the text in Colossians 1, he's writing about things that are absolutely glorious. Because the glory of Jesus is found in His identity, in who He is. And Paul tells us three things about who Jesus is here in the text. First of all, in verse 15, Paul tells us that Jesus is the definitive picture of God. He says in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes the invisible God visible as the icon. That's the Greek word literally that's used to describe Jesus being the definitive picture or the image of the invisible God. He's the icon, the representation of God. He's like a coin that's been stamped with the image of the president. Right? You see his image there. It's a representation of him. And Paul says he is the exact representation, the image of this invisible God. Jesus has made him visible before our eyes. So if you want to know what God is like, then you look no further than Jesus. So you don't have to grasp at theories of the nature of God. You don't have to grasp at theories about the character of God. You don't have to grasp at theories about the person of God because Jesus has made Him concrete and real in our human experience as He took on flesh and became a man like you and I. He's the image of the invisible God. In addition, Paul tells us this about Jesus, that He is the God who made us. In verse verse 19, listen, he says this. He says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, Paul says that whenever you look at Jesus, you don't see all of God because the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit. There are three persons, one essence. Jesus is one of the who's that makes up the, right, right, makes up the what of God. He's one of the who's. So He's one of the persons of the Godhead. So you don't see all, that, all of God, but you see all that is God in Jesus. You see the mercy of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, the love of God. All that makes God God, you see in Jesus Christ. Which is why He's the definitive picture. But He's also the one who created us. In verse 16 we read, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Jesus is the agent or the source of all that exists. So everything that has ever existed, everything that does now exist, and everything that will ever exist owes its existence to Jesus Christ. For by Him all things were created. Now, this is the glory of Jesus Christ in His identity. He's the image of the invisible God. In the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. He's the one who brought everything into existence. Therefore, He's worthy of this high estimation. 
He's worthy of the honor, celebration, and exaltation. The glory, you see, is His identity. And it means at least these two things for us. As we think about how, how do we respond to this glory of Jesus, beholding it, not being able to take our eyes off of it. The first thing that I want to show you this morning that it means for us is this, is that you cannot find God apart from Him. You cannot find God apart from Him. Listen, there may be some of you out there right now who are tuned into this live stream, who are seeking Okay, with everything that seems to be collapsing around you, and maybe even some of it which seems to be collapsing within you, you're seeking, you're reaching, you're looking for some kind of meaning, you're looking for some kind of purpose, you're looking for some kind of explanation. You're looking for God. And I want you to know this morning, if that's you, you cannot find God apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot. See, when you're searching for God, it's not like you're creating a Congress of religions, right? Living in a democracy or a constitutional republic in which we find ourselves. Listen, it's a good form of government. Um, but, but one of the things that means is that we have a Congress that represents us in Washington that tries to get legislation and laws passed and they work together and every state sends certain representatives there into the, the House and into the Senate in order to represent their constituents' best interests. And whenever many of us think about coming to God, we think of it in a very similar fashion. We think we can kind of piecemeal together our vision or version of God. So we can have a congress of religions. So the Buddhists get one representative, and the Confucianists get one representative, and the Christians get one representative, and the Muslims get one representative, right? And, And the New Agers kind of get one representative, and everybody gets one representative because they all have something to contribute, But listen, what this text tells us is this, is that if you're looking for God, you cannot piecemeal together a vision or version of God from all the different worldviews across the globe. Because Jesus is the definitive picture of who God is, the image of the invisible God. You cannot find God apart from Him. Okay? So you can't go around Him to find God. You must go through Him. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says this. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's no one who comes to the Father but by me. All right, so it's not a piecemeal version of God or vision of God. So you cannot find God apart from Him. But listen all, second of all, church, you also if you, you cannot find God apart from Him, but you can keep nothing from Him. Listen, in verse, at the end of verse 15, Paul says this, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now listen, what that does not mean is it does not mean that He was the first created being. Right? There are some cults that believe that Jesus was the first created being. But rather what it means is this, that he, as, that he is the one who possesses all the rights, all the privileges, and all the authority of the firstborn. You see, in ancient cultures, the firstborn child, particularly the firstborn son, inherited the lion's share of the father's wealth, of the father's property. He was the one who, when the father died, took on the mantle of leadership within the family and the authority over the family's affairs. 
And so when Paul refers to, to Jesus as the firstborn of creation, he is not saying that Jesus was the first created being, but rather Jesus is the one who has all the rights, all the privileges, and all the authority of the firstborn who rules over all of creation, over all that exists. It means that Jesus has the right to do as he desires with everything that he has made including you and I. It means that He's the one that gets to call the shots in our life. He's the one who gets to set the parameters for our life. He is the one who gets to say, this is what's healthy, and you, you should live in this, and this is what is unhealthy, and you should turn from this. Let me see if I can break it down for you like this. A couple of years ago, I was traveling to South Africa on a mission trip to go teach and train some young leaders there. And as we flew from Dallas-Fort Worth to London Heathrow, and we deplaned there in London for a layover, and we had to pass through the security there once again in London. And as I went through the security check, uh, at one point when they passed my backpack through the x-ray scanner, they pull, you know, you always have that heart, that, that sinking feeling in your heart when they pull your bag off the line. You're like, oh, where did they find? Right? Well, well, unbeknownst to me, I had forgotten that I had in that bag a small little like three-inch pocket knife or two, two and a half inch pocket knife, right? It wasn't a large machete or anything. It was a little pocket knife. Now, I don't know how they missed it in Dallas whenever they let me on the plane there. Hmm. Right? A little scary. But in London, they found it. And so they pulled me aside and they began to ask me all kinds of questions about where I was coming from and where I was going. And was there anything in my bag that would hurt them if they searched through it? And so he begins to dig through it and he finds the pocket knife. And I'm just like, oh. Right? And I've been through this before. You would think that I would remember to take it out before the trip. But he, he proceeded, the guy in London proceeded to instruct me. He's like, you know, sir, these pocket knives are illegal in London. They're illegal in England. They're against the law. You cannot have one of these in your possession. Where are you coming from? It's like, well, I, I played the dumb American card, right? I'm just, I'm just, I'm coming from the States. I didn't know. And, but they, they continued, right, to, to reiterate to me over and over again, it's illegal to carry this onto British soil. And so fortunately, right, they confiscated the knife. They, they put it into their little bin there and they let me go about my merry way. Uh, but what I realized from that instance was that that individual had the authority or was given the authority by those in authority to say, this is what you are able to bring upon, uh, onto our sovereign soil, and this is what you can't bring onto our sovereign soil, because we are sovereign here, not you. In other words, we're in authority here and not you. We're the ones in control here and not you. And listen, whenever we come to Jesus... Listen, to behold His glory, His identity as the God who made us, as the one who has all authority, rights, and privileges to rule over all that He has made, then He's the one who gets to say, here's what you can bring in, here's what must be kept out. Here's what will be healthy for you, here's what will destroy you. So He's the one who gets to make that determination because He is sovereign over the soil of our lives as the one who made us. Right? Now, that's hard for some of us to think about. But listen, if, it's, if that's hard for you, if you stumble over that, let me ask you this question. Why would you want to keep anything from Him? Why would you want to keep anything from Him in the first place? Listen, in verse 16, Paul says that everything was created by Him and for Him. A part of what that means is that you and I were created 
by him. So we had a des- he designed us. We were created for him. He has a purpose for us. So he designed us with a purpose. And listen, every time we try to go against the grade of his design for our lives and his purpose for our lives, we're ultimately working toward our harm and destruction. Uh, in the same way that anybody who creates a watch, like if I took my Apple Watch and I thought my Apple Watch looks like it would be a good hammer, okay? And I started to try and drive nails with my Apple Watch, okay? That's not going to last very long before that screen shatters and cracks and all of the chips inside are destroyed. Why? Because that watch wasn't designed for the purpose of driving nails, it was designed for the purpose of telling time. Okay, listen, if you try to use something that wasn't designed for the purpose for which you're using it, ultimately it's not going to be very effective and perhaps it could be very destructive. And the same is true about our lives. Why would you want to keep anything from Him when He's designed you and He has a purpose for you? If you keep something from Him, you're going against the grain of His design, you're going against the grain of His purpose, and ultimately your life will not be effective, and ultimately it could result in your destruction. As we try to keep things from Him. Listen, similar to what St. Augustine said when he said this, he said, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Until they find rest in His design, they find rest in His purpose, there's always going to be a restlessness in your life. You're never going to really feel like you're satisfied, like you're really fulfilled. See, if you believe you were created for leisure, or you believe you were created for hobbies, or you believe you were created for work, or if you believe you were created to earn money and have capital, then right now in this moment, when you're forced to stay at home, when your earning potential is drying up, then there is an exponential restlessness in your life if that's what you believe you exist for. And if that's what you believe is going to bring you ultimate fulfillment. But listen, church, if you believe, if you believe that you were designed by God for God, then listen, even when your earning potential dries up, and even whenever you're less productive than you were three weeks ago, then listen, you can still find rest because your heart is resting in God. Not in your leisure activities, not in your earning potential, not in the degree of productivity that you're having right now. See, your heart will always be restless until it finds rest in Him, and that restlessness will change from season to season and stage to stage. Even whenever everything returns to a new sense of normal, there will still be a restlessness in your heart if you have not come to terms with how He's designed you and for what purpose He has created you. So listen, Jesus is the definitive picture of God and you cannot find God apart from Him and you can keep nothing from Him. Church, behold His glory. Behold His glory this Palm Sunday. See who He is and see what that means for your life. Second of all, not only do we need to look at the glory of Jesus, but we also need to behold His grace. Listen, remember to behold something is not to have a passing glance, but to stare at it intently, to have our eyes locked on it like a beautiful piece of art or like a picture of a 12-pound bass, right? You just can't look away. That thing is gargantuan. I just can't take my eyes off of it. It's to behold it to look at. 
And the word grace in the New Testament, listen, it literally means this. The unmerited favor of God. And listen, it's unmerited because it's not something that we earn by our performance. It's not something that we earned by our accolades or our achievements or our accomplishments. It's not that God looked down upon us and said, you're deserving of my grace for your performance. You're, reserve, you're deserving of my approval because of all of your achievements. That is, it is absolutely contrary to that. That we didn't deserve anything from God, but out of His grace He gave everything. Right? So it's unmerited and it's favor because grace is a very multifaceted word. It's the kindness of God, the approval of God, the aid and assistance of God, the encouragement of God, the gift of God. It's a very multifaceted word. It's favor resting upon our lives, not because we've deserved it, but because He has bestowed it in Jesus Christ. And so when we think about beholding His grace, there's two types of grace I want us to see in this text and the way we ought to respond to them. And the first one is this. I want to encourage you as we look at His grace, as we see and savor His grace, behold His grace, that you would trust His saving grace. See, in Colossians 1, 19-20, we read, For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. See, Jesus... In his life and in his death, he puts on full display the saving grace of God by reconciling all things to himself. Now to say that God, through Jesus, reconciled things to himself, including us as human beings, through, by making peace with the blood of his cross, it assumes two things. The first thing that it assumes, church, is this. It assumes that we were separated, estranged, and cut off from God. That's how we were born. The word reconcile means to bring two people or parties back together following a separation, a division, or a disruption in their relationship and to restore them to their former state of intimacy, closeness, and union. Like, so for instance, when a husband or a wife or a parent or a child get sideways with each other, they get cross with each other, right? Whenever they have, when one of them wounds or wrongs the other or sins against the other, and it causes a separation or disruption in their relationship, right? Reconciliation means the restoration of that relationship to their former intimacy. Because whenever division comes, whenever sin enters, it violates the intimacy that they once shared. That a husband shared with a wife, or a father shared with a daughter, or a mom shared with a son. It violates that intimacy, that closeness, that union. Whenever one sins against the other, there is a distance, a separation or a division that is created. And listen, if that is the case in human relationships and we need reconciliation to be brought back together, how much more so is there a division, a separation and a disruption in our relationship with God on account of our sin? And listen, in the beginning... Our first parents enjoyed an absolute intimacy and union with God in the garden. However, their willful decision to reject what God had said to f- in order to follow what they felt. It's the essence of sin. To reject what God has said in order to follow what I feel. Right? It causes a separation, division, and estrangement between them and God. Here's why. Because God in His holiness can no longer fellowship with men and women in their sinfulness. 
God in His holiness can no longer fellowship with men and women in their sinfulness. So God banished them from the garden. And He does so to cut them off from the tree of life so they would not live forever in this state of estrangement and separation from God without the intimacy that God created them to enjoy. But even then, even even in that casting them out of the garden, God would make a promise that one day that one born of the seed of the woman would come. And though he would have his heel struck by the serpent, he would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And, be, and he would do so. As he would do that, he would, he would deliver the knockout punch to the serpent, essentially. And the one that God promised is none other than Jesus Christ, who though He never once sinned, He did not need reconciliation with God. He brought it for us. And He did so by living the perfect sinless life that you and I should have lived, that Adam and Eve should have lived, of trusting God, of obeying God, of submitting to God, of honoring and exalting God, recognizing the primacy and priority of God and not following what they felt. Right? He lived that way every moment and every breath, every day and every hour. And though He lived a life of perfect submission and sinlessness, He ultimately bore our sin at the cross as a, by ta- and took our punishment upon Himself. In order that our sin having been dealt with and God's anger and wrath and justice falling upon Jesus would pave the way for our reconciliation with Him if we would trust His saving grace. If we believe that what would reconcile us to God is not us trying as hard as we possibly can to be as good as we humanly possibly could but that what would reconcile us with God is trusting that there was one who lived and died in our place. That would bring reconciliation between us and God. See, for, the, for us to be reconciled assumed that we were cut off from Him. And there may be some of you who are listening this morning who are in that very position. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to trust in the saving grace of God that Jesus is the one and only who can reconcile you with God because you are cut off from Him as I was as well until at the age of 15 someone shared with me about the grace of God and I placed my faith in Him. And the second thing this assumes is not only that we were cut off from God, but also that we were at war with Him. Listen, in verse 20, Paul says that the way that Jesus brought about this reconciliation was by making peace by the blood of His cross. To say that Jesus was making peace assumes that we're not born in a position of spiritual neutrality, but in a position of spiritual hostility. In other words, when we're born by nature, we're not just indifferent toward God, but we hate Him. And that's a word that some of us might kind of choke on a little bit. I don't hate God. But listen, that hatred toward God, that enmity toward God, right? it it expresses itself in this way. You know, by nature, we believe the commands of God are burdensome and we want to cast them off. 
By nature, we don't want anyone telling us what we can and cannot do, what is good for us, what is bad for us, what we were designed for, and what goes against the grain of our design and purpose. And it puts us in a position of fighting against God's design so that we can fulfill our desires. The same thing that our first parents did. To cast off God's commands, to cast off God's design in order to follow what they felt is the very thing that we do by nature. And that puts us in a position of warring against God. Of firing shots across the bow. And in order to be reconciled, we needed someone to bring an end to all that hostility, to that enmity, to that war. And the person who has done that is Jesus. And He's made peace by shedding His very blood for us at the cross. You see, this war was only going to end in one of two ways. It would either end with our death and ultimate destruction. Because ultimately, we were never going to win that war. Or... Or it would end in us trusting the saving grace in the person of Jesus Christ and having that war, that hostility be brought to an end and be ushered into this reconciled relationship so that we once again could enjoy the intimacy that God created us for with Himself as He's made peace by the blood of Jesus Christ. So trust His saving grace so that you might no longer be at war with Him, and that you might enjoy intimacy, reconciled relationship with the One who has made you. And listen, one of the implications of trusting in a saving grace is this, church. Because of what Jesus has done, I want you to consider this. There is nothing that can keep Him from you. Listen. There's nothing that we should keep from Him, but I want you to know something, that because of the work of Jesus, there's nothing that can keep Him from you. This means there's no case that's too severe for Jesus to heal. No life too far gone for Jesus to bring back. There's no child too rebellious for Jesus to turn their heart. No sin too big to overshadow or overpower the blood of His cross. You can't outweigh His patience. You can't outrun His reach. You can't outsin His grace, church. Right? There's nothing that can keep Him from you. Because while Jesus demands and deserves everything from us, I want you to know that He has bankrupted heaven to ensure that there is no debt that could not be covered by the cross. See, the reason there's nothing that can keep Him from you, because though He was high in His holiness, He made Himself low in humility to come and lay His life down for us. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. At the end of the 2015 live action remake of the Disney classic Cinderella, Cinderella is approaching the now king, once prince, as she really is. This time there's no magic, there's no ball gown. Rather, she's in this simple, tattered servant's dress. And at this point in the story, the narrator kicks in with an incredibly penetrating question. The narrator asks this, Would who she was, who she really was, would it be enough? There was no magic to help her this time. This is perhaps the greatest risk any of us will ever take to be seen as we truly are. And whenever she rounds the corner coming down the stairs and walks into the parlor, the prince turns his back uh, or his face towards her. And as he beholds her, he says, Who are you? And Cinderella replies, Cinderella, I am no princess. I have no carriage, no parents, no dowry. I don't even know if that slipper will fit. 
But if it will, will you take me as I am? And the prince replies, of course I will, but only if you will take me as I am. An apprentice who's still learning his trade. Now listen, at this point, the prince had become king because his father had died. And so now he's looking for a queen as he scours, scours the land. And he finally comes to this last place. And he has his servant bring in the slipper, places it on her foot. And of course, we all know that it fits. But the question that she asks, will you take me as I am, is the question that all of us perhaps ask whenever we come to God. God, I'm not very, this is, this is the only way that we can come to God is by saying, God, I'm not very impressive. God, I don't have anything that would make you bring, shower your approval upon my life. But God, will you take me as I am? And God says to us the same thing. Of course I will. Only if you will take me as I am. See, at this point in the story, the prince had become the king, but he's a king that's dripping with humility because he says, listen, though I'm the king, I'm just an apprentice who's learning his trade. And there's the difference between he and Jesus. Jesus is no apprentice. Jesus is the king of all creation. He's the expert on everything. But he says the same thing to you that that prince said to her. Of course, I will take you as you are with all of your past, with all of your history, with all of your failures, with all of your sin. So long as you will take me as I am, the great king of your life, the one whom you would yield to and submit to, the one that you would allow to call the shots and say, this is safe to bring in. This is what you need to keep out. Of course, I'll take you as you are, so long as you will take me as I am. So church, and those of you listening this morning, have you taken him as he is? Have you beheld his glory so that you might behold his grace and trust in his saving grace, knowing there's, you can keep nothing from him and there is nothing that can keep him from you? But listen, not only must we trust in his saving grace, but lastly, I'm going to close with this, we must rest in his sustaining grace. Now, to sustain something means to strengthen it or support it, to uphold it, and it's as it as it finds itself to be under stress. And listen, I don't know any of us right now who does not need to rest in the sustaining grace of God in Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Paul says that in Jesus, all things, not just some things, but all things hold together. Right In Jesus and only in Jesus can you find the strength. Only in Jesus can you find the support. Only in Jesus can you find the, 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 the solidity that you need to keep from cracking under the weight of the stress that is being placed upon your life and upon your family right now. And listen, I want to tell you the way that you rest in the sustaining grace of Jesus is by learning to recenter your life around Him. And listen, this time of stepping back from all of our activity and everything that is going on around, with everything that's going on around us, is there is no better time in your life to recenter your life around Jesus, to have His sustaining grace at your fingertips and available to you by the power of the Holy Spirit to keep you from cracking under the stress of the weight of the world, the weight of your finances, the weight of your family and provision and protection and health, to recenter your life around him because apart from doing that listen you will inevitably spin out of control 
Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. When Karen and I moved from our first little apartment over in Garland back in 2002 into our first home in Rowlett, I was in seminary. We didn't have a whole lot of money at that time in order to go out and buy appliances and furniture and everything that we needed for our home. And so, man, I was scouring, okay, like any young couple does, looking for hand-me-downs, right, second and third-hand stuff that we might come into uh, to ownership of. And so one of my fellow seminary students had just moved into an apartment, and he had a washing machine, but there was a washing machine that the previous tenant of that apartment had left, and we needed a washing machine. And so I said... He said, I think it works. It's sitting on the back patio. And so he said, I'll sell it to you for 200 bucks. I was like, deal. All right. So I go over, I load up the washing machine, we bring it home and we hook it up to the water and we plug it in. And of course, every, you know, fortunately, right, no, there was no return policy. Okay. Even though this guy was a seminary student, um, no return policy, but it worked. So praise God, it worked. Okay, and so we wash our first load of laundry. We put that load of laundry in there. And I think we've probably always been those kinds of people who like to wash one big load instead of a bunch of smaller loads. So we put that big load of laundry in there and we turn that washing machine on. It was one of those old school washing machines that had the agitator in the middle. Okay, so as that thing spun, it would kind of make the clothes go up and down. And so the agitator begins to spin in the wash cycle and then it gets to the spin cycle. And as it begins to spin... Okay, that load had become unbalanced in the tub. And so what happened in our small utility room in that little starter home in Rowlett is as that spin cycle continued, this bang, 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 bang got louder and louder and louder and more consistent. So much so that I thought that maybe the walls were about to fall down in the utility. So I go running in there and I open the lid and sure enough, everything was shifted to one side. And so I took everything, as, a, as, the, as the spin cycle slowed down, I took everything and redistributed it and closed the lid and turned the spin cycle back on, and the spin cycle was able to finish. And every so often, every time we'd wash a load of clothes, it would become unbalanced. Everything would get off-centered in there. We'd have to go and redistribute it and recenter it. Because without that, right, ultimately it was going to cause damage to the machine and maybe even damage to the walls around it as it began to shake violently there in that little cubby it was, the washing machine fit into. But listen, I want you to know that our lives are very much like that washing machine. There are times in our lives where everything gets out of balance, church. Everything gets out of balance. And as a result, everything is shifted one direction or another. And it's in moments like this, to, we, we need to learn to rest in the sustaining grace of God by recentering our lives around Christ. Okay, not around our finances. Not around our, our, our freedom, not around the, our, our, our relative ease of life and comfort here in the States, but to center our life around the person of Jesus Christ. So maybe rather than this week, rather than tuning into Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or the local network affiliates or your, 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 your online news feeds, your social media feed. Maybe you would just step back from that as we head toward Easter. Maybe you would fast from social media this week and maybe you would spend time recentering your life around Jesus and see if some of those things that seem to be out of balance and just banging on the edges of your life if they maybe don't get silenced a little bit. 
as you recenter in the word of God, as you recenter in prayer and in petition and in intercession and in supplication, as you bring your life around the center of Christ and allow him to hold all these pieces together that you've been trying to hold together as you try to shift your weight over here and hold this one together and shift your weight over here and hold this one together and shift your weight over here and hold this one together. Rather than doing that, you will learn to center your life around Christ and allow him to hold all things together. So rest in his sustaining grace and trust in his saving grace. As you behold His grace, church, His unmerited favor in your life. Because in so much as you did not do, I did not do anything to deserve His saving grace. I didn't do anything to deserve His, His sustaining grace either. And neither did you. But He freely gives it. And it is at your fingertips, at your disposal. If you, as the author of Hebrews says, writes, as he says, as if you would just lift your eyes to Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him, despised the cross, endured the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work of redemption complete. And the Holy Spirit poured out that you and I, you and I, might be held together by him. So this week, I want to encourage you, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth, they'll grow strangely dim as you behold His glory and as you behold His grace. Let's pray together. Father, today we pray for a speedy resolution to that which keeps us isolated and lonely and separated. But Father, during this time, may you help us look to your Son, our Savior, the one who's able to hold all things together in our life, that we would not shift our gaze away from Him, but God, we would fix our eyes upon Him, knowing that when we do and center our lives on Him, that He's able to hold everything else together in our lives. Father, may we know today for those who are seeking you in the midst of this historical moment, Father, I pray they would find that you are worthy of their trust and they can trust in your saving grace to be reconciled to you, to have their war and hostility with you put to an end. And as they trust in your saving grace, as they behold your glory, the identity of Jesus, the one from whom it is irrational to withhold anything because the only rational response to Him being the one who is the definitive picture of God, the one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and the one who has made everything, the only rational response to those truths is to give everything over to Him. It doesn't make any sense to keep anything back from Him. So, Father, may we do that. And may those who are searching and seeking for you find that the God who made them is only found in the face of Jesus Christ. May they behold your glory. May they taste of your grace. 
And through all of this, Father, may you sustain us by your word, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.